Hello and welcome to Optimist in Progress, a podcast that explores the practice of active optimism and the vital role it plays in helping us shape a better future. My co-host, UCLA's Dr. Drea Lettermendi and I are talking to change makers and future shapers from all walks of life. From artists to activists, environmentalists, musicians, meditation experts, athletes and entrepreneurs to understand how they build their practice of optimism in the face of challenges and curveballs that life throws in their path. We'll bring you inspiration and perhaps a little reassurance to keep on keeping on. So Dre, here we are at the beginning of season two of Optimist in Progress, and we kicked off season one with the aim of providing tools for optimists, providing ideas and inspirations for people that wanted to have a positive mindset, even through kind of challenging times. And we kicked it off in January, and it was about helping people find ways of building resilience and perspective through a pandemic that I think everyone thought was going to be months. Um, And here we are, it's now moving into years, the pandemic, and uh, it still shows no signs of alleviating. There's new variants. Um, The goalposts seem to be moved all the time. So we're back here. I didn't expect to be starting the second season in a pandemic, but we are. Um, And it seems like an even more interesting time and a more important time to talk about finding hope and um, using optimism as an active tool to help keep going and keep finding positive ways to move through this personally, socially, all the way through. Candidly, I don't think we started the podcast with the intention of it being a pandemic podcast, right? I think we had this <laughs> this well-intentioned plan to provide healthy habits and uplift people and really have achievable ideas and strategies around taking good care of ourselves. This coincided with the pandemic. And even though this isn't what we set out to do, I'm so grateful that we're still here and that we're continuing to be just incredibly mindful and and ready. You know, we continue to be in the space of considering how this crisis is impacting our mental health. So I absolutely agree. The the goalposts have changed. The surprises are ever occurring. We we didn't anticipate Delta. We didn't anticipate the vaccinations um, not uh, reaching the milestones we all wanted them to reach. So so here we are dealing with new stressors and these emerging barriers, and still. I think our our mission continues to be uh, pretty straightforward and and incredibly foundational. So I'm very grateful for that. On season one, we spoke to lots of inspiring people from Grammy-nominated musical artists to award-winning architects to urban farmers, food writers. There was inspiration all around on people's stories and how they built optimism into their the way that they approached situations in order to achieve things that were really impressive and really diverse in their approach to all of these pieces. Personally, what was in the back of my mind in a lot of those conversations was helping people through a few months of a pandemic. And I think what we're finding now is that we're, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel that a lot of people have been looking for is, you know, either moving or seems to be you know, are we even in a tunnel? 
<laughs> it seems like we're not even quite sure where the pandemic is going to take everyone. Um, there's really, you know, kind of stress-inducing conversations, whether it's about vaccines, their efficacy, people's adoption of them. There's all kinds of different challenges that are going on. And really, it seems like this second season is about building optimism in a time of flux where there really is no kind of clear idea about what the world's going to be like in 12 months, 18 months. But we know that we have to get through it and kind of come out strong and come out better as as people if we can. So it seems like the kind of backdrop has is, is slightly changed. But as you say, I think that, that a lot of the conversations that we have with people in this season are going to help understand that maybe actually that idea that we were in control in the first place is not the reality anyway. Maybe there is a lot less control on a day-to-day basis that we all have than we thought we did. And maybe embracing that can can help um, be in a, in a really good place kind of coming out. And I think this is a moment of reflection as we launch the second season, right? That while we hope to continue to learn from storytelling and hear from folks who have these uh, tips and, and in some cases, pretty extraordinary ways in which they've they've handled challenges, that maybe this is the way of living. And I love the way that you are reframing this for me as well, that we're getting toward a mindset that is not so fixated on when is this going to end, but rather a transformation to thinking about well, how do we live our lives in a time of flux? How do we live our lives with great joy, with um, successes, with idea generating, with connection and togetherness, knowing that we're continuing to be challenged, knowing that of all the things that are happening, there is no immediate relief. And I think that's probably a healthy way to approach the next year or so, Um, historians, scientists, physicians, most of the people who who know about the way pandemics work have let us know this is not going to turn around in a day, in six months, in a year. This will have a ripple effect for years and years to come. And I think there's also that optimist piece to that. It means that the Mm. ripple effect is ourselves growing and strengthening and being more intuitive and as a community being incredibly insightful about where our vulnerabilities are and where we really need to tune in to pay attention to um, and, and begin to kind of refuel and, and plant the soil. And, and that's really, I think that can be really energizing for people. That's really interesting, isn't it? I was reading a piece the other day that referred to the move from pandemic to endemic so it was talking about the influenza pandemic that happened at the beginning of the 20th century Um, and the flu shots that people get now uh, actually that the variant of flu that's growing around is is just a, a, a different variant of that influenza that was around over a century ago and and actually for me looking at this pandemic as moving 
going into an endemic stage and just accepting that this is going to be part of life for as long as we're around actually helps in some way because I think the the kind of it doesn't suggest that there's going to be a kind of flick of the lights one day and it's back to normal um it actually rather than looking back it suggests that you need to work into this as being kind of part of all of our existences and you know we talked in the first season about the Hubler-Ross stages of grief model um and we talked about chronic versus acute stress um and how to manage those things but actually looking at this as just an ongoing part of life I think in some ways helps me frame the, the the times that we're going through um and stops me from kind of craving a a return back to normal and think about it in a different way it's probably really crucial for us to consider that change curve elizabeth kubler ross was the psychologist who developed this model and in, in in its history it's been called the grief and loss model, or even the death and dying model. And we now refer to it as the change model because so many people have realized it applies to our uh, experience anytime we have a, a transition, anytime there's a big shift in our lived experience. So um, corporations use this, universities use this, of course, therapists use this. And I, I recommend that that folks listen back to it or... or um, look up and, and visualize with us this model. It's it's a change curve that shows us that whenever there is a huge incident that requires a, a meaningful change for us, we first experience a um, tremendous amount of emotional responses. The the denial, the, the immediate shock, uh, kind of being frozen in time, not knowing what to do, and then moving through transitional phases and why I love referring to this model, especially with some of the clients and students I work with and people who are really stuck in their grief during this time, is to remind them that there is a natural recovery as a part of this. Mm. And that what we probably don't know is uh, when that recovery starts or, or how, how quickly we will begin that bounce back. Uh, but when we do, it's it's a really fundamental phase of our emotional growth. It's experimenting what works, what doesn't work. It is looking at our own control and autonomy, which is called decision-making. You know, how do I participate in my recovery? And then, you know, finally, the last phase is integration. And it's how we are taking all of this new knowledge and applying it to what the world is like today. Mm. And I guess if you'd ask me if we're at integration, I'd say, I, I think we're at the start of it. I think we're, we're, many of us are realizing that rather than go back to a so-called normal world, we're beginning to understand um, and, and emerge in, into a new normal or rather um, this integrated phase that could be so much more healthy for us than being stuck in the past. Where are we now? Because there are some familiar rhythms happening. So for instance, it's September now, there's a big return to schools, colleges, there's actually a lot of workplaces asking people to come back in. Um, 
yeah, it is a return to some familiarity, but other things are still completely in flux. We experienced it this week or last week, actually, with our kids where they're doing tests every week for, for COVID at the school, uh, which is a great thing. But my son came back with a, what turned out to be a false positive and we got him retested and worked out it was a false positive, but, but there was no mechanic to get him back into the school system. So we had, on one level, it was great for the kids to go back to school. But on the other hand, it was a real reminder that it isn't a kind of back to normal moment. So what, we, what are you seeing now? Where, where are we now? There is this um, return of some familiar rhythms of living, yet on the background of, of flux. What, what are you seeing? Well, I have to be really honest. Uh, You're right, we're still in the pandemic and social scientists are saying we're approaching what's referred to as an echo pandemic. And this is a really long phase. This is the ripple effect of the initial crisis. Not assuming that COVID is no longer an issue. COVID is absolutely still an issue. But the longstanding social, economic, political effects are going to continue to impact our lives. So, uh, just and what's an echo pandemic? Uh, an echo pandemic is is essentially the the ripple effect of the initial crisis that doesn't necessarily um, that I'd say has multiple contributors, um, but are different actual like different crises that emerge. Um, Let me give some examples. So, of course, the wave of mental health issues that are emerging because of the pandemic. Um, And again, these are all intersecting, right? Um, I work on a college campus. Anxiety and stress is particularly high in young people, traditional uh, college-age students who express feelings of grief, depression, not knowing what their careers will look like in this pandemic or in this post-pandemic era. Suicide Mm -hmm. rates are particularly high. Uh, and and they're slightly increasing among young people of color. And when we look at those disaggregated groups, we realize that when we have been so fixated on the the bigger suicide rate, you know, all all of us in one group, uh, we didn't realize that there are certain communities that have every year been more and more vulnerable to suicide. Um, And then as we talked about vaccination, um, we... Perhaps we're overconfident in our predictions of vaccination rates. And I'd say now, and I feel this in in the institution I'm in, there is this, there's this uh, frustration and fatigue. Why can't we get these numbers up? Um, How do we campaign better? How do we encourage people to look at the science? And, and lastly here, as a scientist practitioner, I'd say what's particularly frustrating is the emerging groups who are denying scientific finding, denying scientific exploration, these anti-science yeah. groups who muddle these concerns and and just make it more difficult to create community resilience. Yeah, there's a real sense of goalposts being moved, of hoping we were through this, but also maybe a collective sense that we're losing that actually the you know maybe we could have got through this maybe we could have been doing better and then there's you know in that challenge become, comes a lot of 
finger pointing and blaming that goes on, which I think actually in in this state that we're in it is a huge cause of anxiety in its own right. The idea that not only could things be better, but actually maybe, you know, are, are there people to blame for this being bad? And I think that that's a, that's a real challenge too. Mm, absolutely dangerous, right? For these losses to create division. And again, this is definitely historical, right? After um, the flu of, of the early 1900s, after World War II, you know, when times are tough, we begin to see these political divides, these um, these factions, uh, it, it, the, these beliefs emerge, and and that does create a lot of difficulties and a lot of barriers as we, you know, collectively try to move forward. Um, and and I'm not naming these things to depress us today, <laughs> um, but I think what's helpful in in the current day is is to be um, pretty transparent. I think people are embracing transparency and and a candid approach is actually incredibly healthy, um, not one that continues to get fixated on losses, but one that just is really attuned to what it is we're dealing with in order to mm. continue to move ahead. So how do we get through this kind of scramble that is the challenges that we're facing now? Because there are some that on a daily basis we have control of so we can control how we behave ourselves but there's a ton of things that we can't control so how do we focus on the things that are positive that help us move forward that can be constructive um, in this moment where there is a, a kind of very chaotic potentially very distracting narrative that's happening in the in the pandemic I was starting to think about how we were all feeling in the first month of the pandemic, you know, dating back to what, uh, March, February, March of 2020. I remember that during that time, there was, of course, a tremendous amount of tension and anxiety and, and uncertainty, but folks seemed to be ready for action. Um, there was almost an energy or eagerness or a, like this sense of, okay, so what are we going to do? And I'm starting to recognize that again in communities and in businesses and in uh, social circles, whether we're calling it a re-entry phase or a re-emergence phase uh, at the university, we're calling it a return to campus. UCLA is now open and over the weekend, we're bringing in 25,000 student residents to wow. campus it's on a, the same weekend uh, in a five-day period it's a it's a, it's a pretty <laughs> it's a pretty huge milestone and yeah. it's it's historical it's um celebratory it's almost um yeah it's life coming numbing back to campus. think about it yeah it's it's yeah. It's, uh, it's so surreal almost to to open in this way and you know frankly we've had years where oh, after the summer we we welcome folks back and, and it feels very different and i bring that up because that energy and proactive um, culture seems to be back. We're ready. We've rested. We've had reflection. We've had pain. And now we are ready to work again, to um, be together again, to um, make change, and, and also to be 
protective of ourselves, which is healthy. Um, and so I have uh, what I've shared with my folks there and what I'd like to share here are, are seven healthy habits that we can think about um, and even do on a day-to-day basis that will be sustainable and helpful for us in this reemergence phase. And in particular, it should help with that kind of re-entry anxiety that a lot of people are feeling right now. So the first, uh, the first idea or strategy is just pacing ourselves. Take it slow. Um, yeah. What, you know, you you talked about school and how um, you kind of have to be on for a bit, off for a bit, and even though that sounds disruptive, maybe that's the pace that it needs to happen. Second, we call this embracing the gray. Um, we know that things will continue to shift. Um, we're adjusting to Delta, we're adjusting to each of our state and county protocols, right? So I think this is really about being okay with not knowing everything and just sitting in that uncertainty. Um, And you mentioned this too, um, control. So one of the most healthy approaches we can take right now is to celebrate what we can control um, and really concretely list those out and, and, uh, and think about uh, really intuitively think about what, what that is. Cause the feeling of helplessness can be so overwhelming to the point that we don't realize that there are a lot of things we do control on a day-to-day basis. And how do we, how do we use that feeling of autonomy and self-efficacy in our experiences? There's a, there's a brilliant quote from Howard Zinn, um, and I'll just take a couple of pieces of it. But when he's talking about optimism, he has a couple of points here, which I just think are so relevant. And he says, if we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. So I think it is about understanding that there's good and bad around. But to focus on just one of those poles is, is, isn't going to help us move forward. He goes on to say that if we do act in however small a way, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of presents. And to live now as we think human beings should live in defiance of all that is bad around us is in itself a marvellous victory. And I think that that for me is like a really in, interesting piece and just on those first two points, the idea that we don't have to wait for a, one big day where everything changes. Actually, you can break it down and just do little bits in in series of present moments um, and actually just by just by doing that you're taking kind of steps through this gray um, uh, and and they can be little steps they don't have to be these giant leaps certainly why burden ourselves with such unachievable you know impossible goals there um, I think it's sensible and it's self-compassionate to follow you know that that recommendation Um Something that I, I do want to mention is this process that psychologists called counterfactual thinking, but most people call it like the what ifs. Uh, <laughs> what if this didn't happen? It, actually, a lot of young people that I work with do this. You know, what if I had, um, what if I had gone to college in person? What if I had received that internship? What if I had, mm. you know, what if this pandemic never happened? Would I be, you know, reaching my goals, my dreams, et cetera? 
And counterfactual thinking is really common and particularly normal, especially if we experience a trauma. Our brain immediately goes to this protective, um, you know, just immerse yourself in thoughts of the good things that could have happened. And I think that this can be helpful at times, but we're in an era now where we need to stop thinking about what else could have happened or what if this didn't happen. Um, it's time to move forward. It's it's time to be uh, authentically where we are. So if we catch ourselves performing or or exercising this counterfactual thinking style, we need to catch, we need we need to interrupt that. Um, we also should zoom. Uh, it's okay to continue to use the platforms and the different technologies we have. Um, in fact. Uh, we have gotten so far, we've made so many advancements in technology that we should continue to embrace that. And if a meeting does not require in-person gatherings, then, then there's, there's no reason to uh, up the anxiety. Yeah. Why, why increase the anxiety of our staff? That's interesting, isn't it? Because I think that there is a, an instinct to kind of go, okay, well, we, we, we can now get together in people's in person. So, we should do that all the time and actually that big shift to from from one extreme to another actually could cause a huge amount of anxiety too and and i think questioning the best use for everyone of that time and the best way to get everyone together is is really healthy it is and and again we've found so many innovative ways to have our meetings to uh, to finish our tasks, uh, there's no reason we're all very stressed. There's no reason to increase the the types of things that put pressure on ourselves and, and to increase the anxiety. Although it's really difficult, a, in a, a very important daily practice is to be grateful and to include some kind of gratitude exercise. And doing this means that you're really being intentional. You're taking some time to observe yourself, your surroundings, your the people around you. And actually the exercise is really simple. You're you're just in the moment either journaling or thinking to yourself how your world has contributed to your own growth, your own joy, your own safety. You know, who are you grateful for? What are you grateful for? Uh, it can be as simple as I had um a healthy and fulfilling meal today. I nourished my body. Um, I went out in the sunlight. Um, I talked to a friend. We don't have to be complicated and overly ambitious. We can find uh, joy and satisfaction in, in the everyday things. And that's related to the last healthy habit that I think is really, really important for a lot of us right now, especially if you're an advocate if you are an educator, if you're an essential worker, if you're a mental health care professional, um, and especially if you're uh, in a vulnerable community or an oppressed community, we should be exercising radical joy, which means mm. that even in times of great trauma like this, we should not only experience joy, but express you know, an authentic satisfaction. Um, and I say that because um, sometimes for many of us, when we feel good during a crisis, we feel guilty. We feel like, oh gosh, I shouldn't be 
you know, having this drink with my friend or, oh my gosh, I'm laughing at this show. I shouldn't feel so happy. Um, I'm hugging someone in a safe way. And then I, you know, should I be happy? And, and the answer is absolutely individual <laughs> happiness is you deserve it. We all deserve individual happiness and it's okay to feel that way. The Dalai Lama says, choose to be optimistic. It feels better. And I think in talking about radical joy, just allowing yourself to enjoy yourself is something that weirdly, you know, we might need to give ourselves a bit more permission to do. Yes. And we've been so hard on ourselves. And so when we do experience joy, many of us, you know, again, just sort of feel a number of secondary emotions, um, including, you know, the ones that have been weighing on us heavily, the guilt, the sadness, the loss, the grief, um, the anger, so much anger, right? So when we have those moments of genuine joy, embrace it. Um, and and I also like to ask, uh, you know, now we're getting somewhat therapeutic, but I ask people to remember it. Um, so if you're down, go back to that time and, you know, remember what that moment felt like, which is really healing. Tom, what can you say about what's ahead in terms of our conversations and our, our dialogue coming up? Is there anything you're able to share at this time? Well, looking at these themes that you've pulled out there, it just makes me really excited for some of the conversations we're going to have in season two. I think we're, we're going to speak to some brilliant people from really diverse fields uh, as we did in, in season one. So we're going to speak to fantastic athletes. We've got an Olympic champion coming on. Um, we're going to speak to incredibly talented chefs. There's uh, musical artists, musical producers, uh, mixologists, some br- people who have done brilliant things with business. And I'm really inspired to continue these conversations because each time we do, I think I find I'm always surprised in the conversation about how someone has found their own way of channeling optimism and using it it for the good. And I think it, for me, it's just inspiring to see how many different paths are available to people. And all those people are doing really inspiring things. I'm looking forward to that. And I'm really picking up on this concept that as we continue our journey together, that this activism is a huge part of our identity in in this work and um the reason that really uplifts me is that that feels purposeful um this is one of the things that we hope to give to our community and hope to inspire among the communities you know what is your purpose what are the things that you know wake you up in the morning what are you here to do and that active part of active optimism is such a foundational part of this work so i'm very excited and i look forward to it me too Drea, thanks again for this conversation. After a a fantastic season one, I'm very much looking forward to the conversations that we'll have in season two. Likewise. Thanks for listening to the Optimist in Progress podcast, brought to you by Optimist Drinks. This podcast is presented by Dr. Drea Lettermendi and me, Tom Johnston. It's produced and researched by Lisa Farr-Johnstone with original music from Reginald Science Perry and edited by Brian Ward and Aginia O'Dell. Email podcast at optimistdrinks.com with any questions or ideas and follow us at optimistdrinks on Instagram for updates on upcoming shows.